The following sermon was delivered by Executive Pastor Rev. Dr. Jonah So in the sanctuary of Fifth Avenue Presbyterian Church in New York City. We welcome you to worship with us every Sunday, in person, or on live stream. For details, go to fapc.org. And now, here is Rev. Dr. Jonah So. Hear now the word of God as it comes to us from the Gospel of John, chapter 13, starting with the first verse. Just before the Passover feast, Jesus knew that the time had come to leave this world to go to the Father. Having loved his dear companions, he continued to love them right to the end. It was supper time. The devil by now had Judas, son of Simon the Iscariot, firmly in his grip, all set for the betrayal. Jesus knew that the Father had put him in complete charge of everything, that he came from God and was on his way back to God. So he got up from the supper table, set aside his robe, and put on an apron. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the feet of the disciples, drying them with his apron. When he got to Simon Peter, Peter said, Master, you wash my feet? Jesus answered, you don't understand now what I'm doing, but it will be clear enough to you later. Peter persisted, you're not going to wash my feet ever. Jesus said, if I don't wash you, you can't be part of what I'm doing. Master, said Peter, not only my feet then, wash my hands, wash my head. Jesus said, if you've had a bath in the morning, you only need your feet washed now, and you're clean from head to toe. My concern, you understand, is holiness, not hygiene. So now you're clean, but not every one of you. He knew who was betraying him. That's why he said, not every one of you. After he had finished washing their feet, he took his robe, put it back on, and went back to his place at the table. Then he said, do you understand what I have done to you? You address me as teacher and master, and rightly so. That is what I am. So if I, the master and teacher, washed your feet, you must now wash each other's feet. I've laid down a pattern for you. What I've done, you do. I'm only pointing out the obvious. A servant is not ranked above his master. An employee doesn't give orders to the employer. If you understand what I'm telling you, act like it and live a blessed life. Jesus said, now the son of man is seen for who he is and God's seen for who he is in him. The moment God is seen in him, God's glory will be on display. In glorifying him, he himself is glorified. Glory all around. Children, I am with you for only a short time longer. You are going to look high and low for me. But just as I told the Jews, I'm telling you, where I go, you are not able to come. Let me give you a new command. Love one another. In the same way I loved you, 
you love one another. This is how everyone will recognize that you are my disciples, when they see the love you have for each other. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks, Thanks be, be to God. God. On Palm Sunday, the Reverend Dr. Scott Black Johnson took us on a fascinating Christian calendar tour to sum up various atonement theories. For me, I almost forgot to hop back on the bus after stopping at Good Friday. The ransom and substitutionary theories of atonement were indeed the ones that I had grown up with and been taught. Jesus pays the price for me. Jesus takes my place. All to satisfy the holy and righteous God. As, as Scott mentioned, who might also come across as seemingly bloodthirsty and angry. The following Monday morning, I read the Lenten devotional penned by our senior graphic designer, Vagina Brisbane. She reflected on the experience of reading Shel Silverstein's The Giving Tree with her daughter, noting that it was a first time read for both. Vashina sums up, spoiler alert, the book starts off simple and innocent enough. A boy loves a tree. The tree does what it does, provide. Over the course of the book, the boy's asks get bigger and bigger and ultimately result in the tree sacrificing itself. I read The Giving Tree at various times in my life, as a child, as an adolescent, and as a youth pastor. In those seasons, I recall walking away feeling warm and thinking, that tree is awesome. <laughs> I too eventually read that story to my children. And I remember after sharing that moment with them, thinking as a tired parent, Ugh, that kid is awful. Please don't grow up to be like him. <laughs> In our Lenten sermon series, Tattoo, Faith's Essential Vocabulary, we've asked the questions, how do these words help us understand God? What would happen if these words were tattooed on our hearts, if these words were the lens through which we viewed the world? Today's word is commandment. How does this word help us understand God? If we get a command from the angry, tired, heavenly parent, what would that mean for us? It means we would respond to God from a place of fear in hopes of avoiding punishment. Is that what God wants? It would seem the obvious answer is no. But I guess it depends on perspective. I'll be honest with you. I prefer to be warm and fuzzy in my dealings with my children. But that approach is not as effective in getting what I want. Empirically speaking, I have found it most effective when I coerce my children with a little bit or a lot of terror and threat mixed in, you know? Hey, okay, hey, I'm not proud of it, 
And I won't stand here, though, and lie about my observations. <laughs> I think I see other parents nodding in agreement. Oh, I know we're not supposed to say that stuff out loud. But, so let me take a moment to clearly express how glad I am that God, our heavenly parent, is not like me in my shortcomings as an earthly parent. Today's story speaks to God's parenting style. Jesus has spent three years doing life and ministry with the disciples. This special season with Jesus is coming to a close. Jesus knows it, but the disciples, not quite. They don't get it. And that is a theme. Hence, the repetition of the phrase throughout the story, you do not yet understand. In the gospel text, we experience the disciples' struggle to learn Jesus' new commandment, despite Jesus' effort. You see, before giving the new command, Jesus demonstrates it. He acts it out. Let's review. It is supper time. The disciples are reclined in their seats. And this is how they ate, leaning on an elbow with their heads and shoulders towards the table and their feet away from it. I know it looks weird back here, but but their feet pointed away from it. Here's the table, there's their feet, okay. (laughs) They're eating olives, matzah, lamb, and fish, enjoying the spread talking about the events of the day. Jesus gets up, takes off his robe, fills a bowl with water, and begins to wash a disciple's foot. I don't know how it plays in your mind, but Jesus wasn't a ninja. So it's not like the disciples was caught like totally off guard. It wasn't like he's eating one second and then look down the next and boom, Jesus is there like washing his feet. Like, oh, look, how'd that happen? Right? What's happening here? It likely went down much more awkwardly. Everyone was eating and talking when suddenly without word, Jesus stands, takes off his robe, and fills a vessel with water. Everyone is thinking, yo, why is Jesus touching the foot washing basin in the middle of dinner? The hand-washing station's over there. And why is he bringing that disgusting bowl toward our dinner table? With lamb grease on his fingers and lips, the first disciple had to be wondering, why is Jesus touching my feet? What am I supposed to do? Uh, Maybe I'll stop eating the kebab. A hush likely fell over the room as the disciples tried to make sense of what Jesus was doing. But each disciple was thinking the same thing. Why is master washing that disciple's feet? Such an act is reserved for the lowliest of servants. How unsightly, how dirty, how undignified. When Jesus finishes washing the feet, he dries them with his apron they would probably think by now he's going to get up and explain what just happened. 
the way he would explain his parables after he preached them to the crowd. But instead, Jesus moves on to the next disciple and does the same thing. The second disciple had to be thinking, since the first disciple stopped eating, maybe I should too. You know, follow the newly set precedent. And so Jesus finishes washing his feet and dries them. Surely now, Master will explain to us, they think. But again, Jesus moves on to the next disciple. Since with this third disciple, a pattern has been established, we could assume that the sense of confusion diffuses a bit. Now some predictability has been introduced. I bet Jesus is going to go on to the fourth disciple after this. Yes, we were right. Now the disciples can relax a bit as more of them are the recipients of Jesus' surprise foot washing. While still awkward, by now I can imagine some of the disciples getting over the weirdness and starting to munch on food again. Olive, matzah. You know, giving four smiles to one another. With each successive foot washing, Peter's heart had to be wrenched at the sight of his master and best friend demeaning himself. But the pattern was established. His turn would eventually come. When Jesus gets to him, Peter lets out his outrage. Master, you wash my feet? Implied in that is his judgment on the other disciples who went before him for failing to object to this egregious act. The other disciples had to be like, don't, I should have said that. <laughs> or they were rolling their eyes thinking, that Peter never went to pass on an opportunity to show us up. But Jesus notes that Peter and the others do not yet understand what Jesus is doing and assures them that they will eventually. Regardless, Peter doubles down and objects, I will never allow you to serve me like this. And again, Jesus has to apply a corrective to Peter. If you don't allow me to wash you, you can't be partners with me. So Peter does what he naturally does and overcorrects, flinging the pendulum to the other side practically ready to strip down and ask Jesus to give him a full bath in front of everyone. <laughs> Shaking his head and resisting the urge to do a face palm, Jesus calms Peter down enough to accept the foot washing and finishes washing the feet of the remaining disciples. As expected, when Jesus completes the act of foot washing, he explains it to his disciples. Do to others as I have done to you. Serve others. You call me master and see, I am not exempting myself from this. And so, you as my followers should wash each other's feet. I think my favorite part of the story is where Jesus calls the disciples little children. As grown men. They could totally take offense at this. But interpreted differently, 
Jesus creates space for them. Allows them by calling them children to the space to learn and to grow. You see, in identifying them as little children, there's like this acknowledgement that they will not be held accountable for not yet understanding everything that has been said and shown tonight. To these little children, Jesus gives a new commandment. Love one another. In the same way I loved you, you love one another. So how does the word commandment help us understand God? Commandment is often paired with the word obedience. Frederick Buchner says this about obedience in his devotional Beyond Words. In recent times, obedience has become a bad word. It seems incompatible with good words like independence, individualism, and freedom. The emphasis is all on doing your own thing and doing it your way. What you're supposed to obey is authority. And authority has come to be confused with the authorities. Who wants to obey them? Again, we come back to the bloodthirsty, angry, tired, heavenly parent who coerces and overpowers us with terror. Commandment requires our obedience. The commandment is to love one another. How does God get us to obey? By giving us a new commandment and exhorting us to do it just as Jesus had shown it to us. In the lowly act of washing one another's feet, humbling ourselves and serving others. This is, however, easier said than done. And Buchner acknowledges that love is no easy task. The difficulty is increased when you realize that by loving God and your neighbors, Jesus doesn't mean loving as primarily a feeling. Instead, he seems to mean that whether or not any feeling is involved, loving God means honoring and obeying and staying in constant touch with God. And loving your neighbors means acting in their best interests no matter what, even if personally you can't stand them. This new command of Jesus is not forced upon us by way of threat. Jesus, like the giving tree, keeps on giving, even without being thanked, without receiving anything in return, and keeps giving to the point of death on a cross. When Bashina asked, what did you think of the giving tree? Her daughter answered, that tree really loved him. The table set before us helps us remember and understand God's love for us so that we can obey the word tattooed on our hearts. Commandment. Love one another. For when we do, everyone will be able to recognize whom we follow the one who showed us love and how 
to love. Friends, depart this place in silence. Hold love in your hearts and return looking for the light. Amen. We hope this sermon has been meaningful to you and given you a measure of hope, encouragement, and good news. If you would like to make a donation to support this audio ministry, please visit fapc.org give. Thank you and blessings to you on this day.